everyone, and welcome back to the Yale Vascular Review. I'm Ocean. And I'm Kiyuri, and we're your hosts for this episode. Quick recap, we talked about recent research on thoracoabdominal aneurysms for our last episode. Yeah, that was really interesting. It was so awesome to learn about something so complex in a simplified and understandable way. Kiri, I completely agree. And it was so much fun producing that episode, all the things that we got to learn during that time. Another amazing thing that I want to mention today that happened recently is that many of our friends and colleagues reached out appreciating this initiative, and we would like to thank you all for listening and for such a positive and encouraging response. And a quick shout out to the European Journal of Vascular Surgery for retweeting our podcast post on Twitter. Thank you so much for your support. That was so cool. So this month, we'll be looking at recent published work on carotid disease. We searched for the material for this episode in the Journal of Vascular Surgery, Annals of Vascular Surgery, and European Journal of Vascular Surgery over the past four to six months. And stay tuned for a surprise paper that we wanted to highlight from another journal, which will be presented by one of our guest speakers. So we looked at 16 carotid artery disease-related papers for this episode, including a randomized controlled trial, a meta-analysis, a few studies on carotid artery stenting, and a couple pertaining to carotid-related imaging. Let's start by talking about a randomized control trial from the Medical University of Innsbruck, Austria, that was published in JVS, titled Cardiac Output and Cerebral Blood Flow During Carotid Surgery in Regional versus General Anesthesia. Dr. Velix Solchner's group explained that an increase in blood pressure, heart rate, and stress hormone levels owing to increased sympathetic activity during carotid surgery under ultrasound-guided regional anesthesia is well known but that they aim to evaluate the effects on cardiac output, cardiac index, and cerebral blood flow under ultrasound-guided regional anesthesia compared to general anesthesia. Patients scheduled for a carotid endarterectomy were randomized prospectively to receive ultrasound-guided regional anesthesia or general anesthesia. In the regional anesthesia group, the cardiac index increased after induction of anesthesia and remained constant until the end of the procedure. In the general anesthesia group, cardiac index was significantly lower. After induction of anesthesia, the regional cerebral oxygenation, as seen from near-infrared refracted spectroscopy, remained constant in the general anesthesia group on both the ipsilateral and contralateral sides. In contrast, it significantly increased in the regional anesthesia group, and these differences did not influence clinical outcomes. Curie, speaking of randomized controlled trials, this next paper that was published in the European Journal of Vascular Surgery, titled Risk of Stroke Before Revascularization in Patients with Symptomatic Carotid Stenosis from University of Basel, Switzerland, on behalf of Carotid Stenosis Trialist Collaboration, was actually a meta-analysis where they used pooled data from recent randomized controlled trials. The pooled data from individual patients with symptomatic carotid stenosis randomized to either stenting or carotid endarterectomy in four recent RCTs and of patients randomized to medical therapy in three earlier RCTs that compared carotid endarterectomy versus medical therapy were compared for this study. The recent RCTs that they included in this study were the CREST trial, ICSS, SPACE trial, and EVA3S trial. And the earlier RCTs that they included in this study were ECSD trial, NASA trial, and the VA309 trial. They found that the stroke risk was lower in recent than the earlier trials when adjusted for time between qualifying events and randomization, age, the severity of qualifying events, and degree of carotid stenosis. 
Off note, the qualifying event was described as the most recent, but not necessarily the first, ischemic event before randomization in the territory of the relevant carotid artery. They concluded that patients with symptomatic carotid stenosis enrolled in recent large randomized control trials had a lower risk of stroke after randomization than historical controls. The added benefit of carotid revascularization to modern medical care needs to be revisited in future studies. Wow, we have a lot of studies from European institutes for this episode. Yes, we do. And we actually have a few more to talk about, so it looks like we'll be extending our stay overseas a bit longer. Is that because you just heard today that the American Board of Surgery is giving you some extra vacation time? (laughs) Maybe. Anyway, this next paper titled Low Risk of Neurological Recurrence While Awaiting Carotid Endartrectomy Results from a Danish Multicenter Study was published in the European Journal of Vascular Surgery from University of Copenhagen, Denmark from Dr. Lovetz's group. This was a retrospective multicenter observational cohort study. Patients scheduled for carotid endartrectomy for symptomatic carotid disease in a five-year period from four centers were included. Data from the Danish Vascular Registry was reviewed. Over a thousand patients underwent the planned surgery and were included in the study. Best medical therapy with antiplatelet or anticoagulation drugs and a statin agent was initiated in nearly all the patients at first assessment. The median delay from index event to the carotid endartrectomy was 11 days, and during that time, about 4% patients experienced ipsilateral neurological recurrence. There were no deaths or major strokes in the waiting time for carotid endartrectomy. The overall 30-day risk for a post-op major event, either death or stroke, was about 3% and not significantly correlated with the timing of surgery. One, two, and three-year mortality rate for carotid endartrectomy patients was about 5%, 8%, and 12% respectively. They concluded that in symptomatic carotid artery stenosis patients awaiting carotid endartrectomy, there were very few neurological recurrences within 14 days. Hmm, interesting. Now, Kiri, since you were getting so homesick, let's go back to New England. Do you want to tell us about the next paper from our neighbors up in Boston? Yes, thanks, Ocean. It's lovely to be back home, especially now with the beautiful fall weather and pumpkin spice lattes. This next paper from JVS is titled Simultaneous Treatment of Common Carotid Lesions Increases the Risk of Stroke and Death After Carotid Artery Stenting. The authors include Dr. Klaus, Dr. Conrad, and Dr. DiCarlo from MGH. They looked at data from the Vascular Study Group of New England from 2005 to 2020 for carotid artery stenting procedures. The cohort was divided into tandem and isolated lesion groups. There were over 2,000 carotid arteries stented in just under 2,000 patients. 96% had isolated lesions, and 4% had tandem lesions. They found that tandem lesions were more likely to be present in women and in patients with a prior carotid endarterectomy, and symptomatic lesions accounted for about 42% of cases. Arteries in the tandem group more often required multiple stents to treat the internal carotid lesion. The tandem group experienced a higher 30-day mortality, more perioperative neurologic events, and a higher incidence of stroke or death. So essentially, the conclusion is that the addition of endovascular treatment of the tandem lesion during carotid artery stenting 
increases periop stroke and death, right, Kiri? Yes, they showed a threefold increase in the perioperative stroke and death and recommended that this should be avoided if possible. Osha, now that we're in Boston, I want to briefly mention another recent paper on carotid stenting from Dr. Syracuse, Dr. Schirmerhorn, and Dr. DeBorst at BI, BIDMC, and University Medical Center, Utrecht, titled Outcomes After Transfemoral Carotid Artery Stenting, Stratified by Pre-Procedural Symptom Status, which was published in JVS. They reviewed VQI database for patients who had transfemoral carotid artery stenting from 2016 to 2020. Patients were stratified by pre-procedural symptom status as asymptomatic, formerly symptomatic, which is over six months ago, or recently symptomatic. They found that recent stroke was associated with greater odds of in-hospital stroke or death compared with recent TIA. Formerly symptomatic status was associated with greater odds of stroke and death compared with asymptomatic status. Continuing on the topic of carotid stenting, the next paper from Journal of Vascular Surgery was published from Dr. Malice's group at UCSD. This was titled, Primary Mechanism of Stroke Reduction in Transcarotid Artery Vascularization is Dynamic Flow Reversal. This was a retrospective review. They looked at all the patients undergoing TCARs with either dynamic flow reversal or distal embolic protection. In VQI database from 2016 to 2019, more than 8,000 patients were identified in the database for this study. They found that, compared to transcarotid stenting with distal embolic protection, TCARs with dynamic flow reversal was associated with a lower risk of perioperative stroke and a lower risk of death and stroke. They concluded that dynamic flow reversal might provide better neuroprotection than a distal embolic filter in reducing the periop risk of stroke. They also did a secondary analysis to compare distal embolic protection in transcarotid stenting versus transfemoral stenting to evaluate the effects of crossing the aortic arch. They found that there were no differences in stroke rates between the two groups, both around 4%. So avoiding the aortic arch did not lead to any reduction in stroke rate. That answers two important questions about carotid stenting in one abstract. Oh, Ocean, there was actually another recent paper in JVS from Dr. Malice's group, and it was titled Anesthetic Choice During Transcarotid Artery Revascularization and Carotid Endarterectomy Affects the Risk of Myocardial Infarction. They reviewed the VQI database for patients undergoing carotid endarterectomy and TCAR for carotid artery stenosis from 2016 to 2019. Over 65,000 patients were included in this study. About 91% had undergone carotid revascularization under general anesthesia. TCAR and carotid endarterectomy had similar rates of stroke, death, and MI when performed with local regional anesthesia. However, when performed with general anesthesia, patients undergoing TCAR had a 50% decreased risk of MI compared with those undergoing carotid endarterectomy under general anesthesia. When stratified by symptomatic status, patients with symptomatic disease undergoing TCAR with general anesthesia had a 67% decreased risk of MI compared with those undergoing carotid endarterectomy with general anesthesia. In contrast, for asymptomatic carotid disease, they found no difference in the risk of MI between patients undergoing carotid endarterectomy versus TCAR. Also, when performed with local regional anesthesia, there was no difference in the MI rates between TCAR and carotid endarterectomy. In conclusion, Patients undergoing TCAR under general anesthesia had lower rates of MI compared with patients undergoing carotid endarterectomy under general anesthesia. 
and when stratified by symptomatic status, the benefit of TCAR persisted only for the symptomatic patients. Thanks, Kiri. Their group seems to be doing a lot of carotid work. It's interesting. Yeah. Now, I would like to introduce our guest speaker for today, Dr. Tanner Kim. Welcome, Tanner. So a few weeks ago, Kiri, we were out for like a vascular resident dinner, and I was discussing this new podcast with Tanner, and we were talking about doing a carotid episode. When Tanner mentioned this next paper, and he said that it's a rather interesting study, and I thought, why not have him join us for this episode and discuss the paper? Yeah, great idea. Thank you, Tanner, for joining us today. Do you want to say hi to everyone who's listening and tell us a bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Tanner. I went to the medical school at the University of Hawaii, and I'm in my final year of integrated vascular residency here at Yale. It's nice to see you again. So Tanner will be discussing the ACSD2 trial that was published recently in Lancet and how it expands upon ACST1 from 2010. Remind us briefly what ACST1 showed. So ACST1 was a multi-centered randomized trial that assessed the long-term effects of successful CEA. Between 1993 and 2003, more than 3,000 asymptomatic patients from 126 centers in 30 countries were blindly randomized to immediate CEA or to indefinite deferral of any carotid procedure. Both groups were on best medical therapy and were followed up until death for nine years. They found that successful CEA for asymptomatic patients younger than 75 years of age reduced 10-year stroke risk versus the deferred group. Thanks for the recap, Tanner. So uh, what about the ACST2? What did that show? ACST2 is an international multi-centered randomized trial of carotid artery stenting versus CEA among asymptomatic patients with severe stenosis thought to require intervention. Patients were randomly allocated to CAS versus CEA and followed up at one month and then annually for a mean of five years. Between 2008 and 2020, greater than 3,000 patients in 130 centers were randomly allocated to CAS or CEA. Overall, 1% had disabling stroke or death procedurally and 2% had non-disabling stroke. Kaplan-Meier estimates of five-year non-procedural stroke were 2.5% in each group for fatal or disabling stroke, and 5.3% with CAS versus 4.5% with CEA for any stroke. They concluded that serious complications are similarly uncommon after a competent CAS and CEA, and the long-term effects of these two carotid artery procedures on fatal or disabling stroke are comparable. Interesting. So the first study discussed how asymptomatic patients with carotid artery stenosis greater than 60% benefited from carotid endarterectomy. And this one shows that carotid artery stenting and carotid endarterectomy are both equally safe options. Yes, I think it has some very novel findings and is sure to generate lots of discussion. Thanks for bringing this paper to our attention, Tanner. I definitely learned something new. Thanks so much for having me today. Also, to any division chairs listening to this podcast out there, Tanner is our graduating chief. He's amazing, and he's looking for a job. Wink, wink. Another paper from the UK that I want to quickly mention here is this retrospective study titled Carotid Endartrectomy Following Intravenous Thrombolysis in the UK published in the European Journal of Vascular Surgery by the Royal College of Surgeons of England. They reviewed a large population-based data set from the National Vascular Registry in the UK for patients who underwent CEA for ischemic stroke. About 12% received preoperative IV thrombolytic therapy. They found that the use of intravenous thrombolytic therapy before CEA in stroke patients was not associated with an increased risk of 30-day stroke, but there was an increase in risk of neck hematoma. 
So Ocean, there was actually this interesting paper in JVS that used 4D phase contrast MRI to measure blood flow rate in cerebral and ophthalmic arteries in patients undergoing carotid endarterectomy before and after surgery. It was titled Quantification and Mapping of Cerebral Hemodynamics Before and After Carotid Endarterectomy Using 4D Flow Magnetic Resonance Imaging. And this was by Dr. Zarin Kub's group in Sweden at Umea University. Collateral recruitment through the ACOM, PCOM, leptomeningeal, and ophthalmic arteries was quantified. They found that the total cerebral blood flow increased by 15% after carotid endarterectomy. On the ipsilateral side, an increased blood flow rate was found after carotid endarterectomy in the ICA, ACA, and MCA, resulting in post-operative blood flow rate distribution without signs of laterality. Hey, Kiri. So since we are discussing imaging, this next paper from UMass, Dr. Arus and Chanzer's group, was published in JVS and it was titled, CTA-derived area stenosis calculations overestimate degree of carotid stenosis compared with NASA trial-derived diameter stenosis calculations. They reviewed CTA data from the UMass Vascular Lab database. They used centiline measurements on a 3D workstation to characterize the degree of carotid stenosis using the NASET method and area of stenosis. They found that the area stenosis CTA calculations dramatically overestimated the degree of carotid stenosis compared with the NASET method. Hmm, that's interesting. Speaking of dramatic, Kiri, what are you planning to dress up as for Halloween? I think I'll go as a frail individual with asymptomatic carotid disease who is undergoing revascularization. What? That's oddly specific. Well, it's because I want to bring up two papers we found that looked into outcomes related to frailty. Oh, okay. Go ahead. The first one titled Impact of Frailty on Clinical Outcomes After Carotid Artery Revascularization was published in Annals of Vascular Surgery by Dr. Ben Harash's group at UCLA. They used the 2005 to 2017 National Inpatient Sample to identify patients who underwent carotid endarterectomy or carotid stenting and classified patients as frail using diagnosis codes defined by the Johns Hopkins Adjusted Clinical Group's Frailty Indicator. Hmm, okay. And the second one, published in JVS by Dr. Mollis's group at UCSD, was Frailty as a Predictor of Outcomes for Patients Undergoing Carotid Artery Stenting that reviewed VQI data to investigate the relationships between frailty index, functional status, and perioperative outcomes in patients undergoing carotid artery stenting. Sounds like we have two good papers here. So um, what did they find? Well, Dr. Ben Harash's group found that compared to the non-frail cohort, frail patients had higher rates of mortality, post-operative stroke, MI, and stroke death, even after adjustment, and concluded that frailty is associated with adverse outcomes and greater resource use for those undergoing carotid revascularization. The other group found that a higher frailty index score was associated with greater odds of perioperative stroke or death, non-home discharge, and a prolonged post-operative length of stay. Also, in the subgroup analysis of the asymptomatic patients, a higher frailty index score was also associated with higher odds of perioperative stroke or death, non-home discharge, and a prolonged post-op stay. The authors cautioned against the use of carotid artery stenting for asymptomatic frail patients based on their findings. On that note, we are reaching the end of this episode, so let me just mention this one last study. This was published in Annals of Vascular Surgery. The title was Evaluation of Factors Associated with and Outcomes for Patients with Non-Home Discharge Destinations Following Carotid Endarterectomy. This was published by Dr. Aziz's group at Penn State. 
They used ACS Nesquip database to identify patients who underwent carotid endarterectomy from 2011 to 2018. Patients were divided into two groups based on their discharge destination, home versus non-home. Pre-op and intra-op factors associated with non-home discharge were older age, diabetes, functional independent status, transfer from other hospitals, symptomatic status, need for blood transfusions, severe ipsilateral carotid stenosis, elective carotid endarterectomy, need for intra-op shunt, and general anesthesia. Mortality among those who were discharged to home was lower than those who were discharged to non-home locations. And that concludes our carotid episode. Links to all the papers we mentioned today can be found in the description below. Thank you everyone for joining us again this month as we ventured up the aorta to the carotids. <laughs> Ocean, um, excitedly, we had listeners from all over the country as well as all over the world, including Brazil, Ireland, Germany, India, Japan, Australia, and even more. That's amazing. We appreciate everyone's support. Thank you so much. Follow us on Yale Vascular Surgery's Twitter for updates and subscribe to our podcast, Yale Vascular Review, on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Please leave any comments and feedback on our Yale Vascular Twitter or Instagram, or leave a review on the Apple or Spotify podcast platforms. This really helps us know what topics you all would like to listen to, and we hope that you will continue to share this resource with your colleagues. And remember, if you like, share, subscribe, or comment, we will be drawing one name for a special gift every episode. And on that note, our winner from last month is... Brandon Munkin, a medical student at Stony Brook. Thank you, Brandon, for liking our post last month. Congratulations. Thank you all for joining us today. We'll be back next month with another interesting podcast episode. Until then, don't stroke out. <laughs> <laughs>